Beloved, you know where to turn. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at verse 34. And after I uh, read uh, the text, I do want to also read Westminster Larger Catechism, question 55, uh, as uh, an important uh, part also of all that we are going to be learning uh, this morning. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 8. Uh, We're going to focus on verse 34, uh, but I want to begin in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And then Westminster Larger Catechism, question 55. How does Christ make intercession? Christ makes intercession by His appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven, in the merit of His obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring His will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace, and acceptance of their persons and services. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word from the book of Romans. We also thank you for our confessional standards, which help us to understand better your holy word. We ask, O God, that you would teach us, humble us, assure us, Sweep away all doubts of your love for us, not only by reminding us of Christ's life and death and resurrection and ascension and being seated at your right hand, but also and even more particularly today in the continual intercession of Christ for for us and for our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The pastor's primary responsibility to his congregation is to preach the gospel. It is to preach the gospel, to help them understand the profound nature and implications of Christ's redemptive work. And if he's a pastor that's worth his salt, preaching the gospel is not only his chief responsibility, but his greatest joy, his greatest joy. Nothing is more thrilling than heralding the gospel of God. And my prayers for the services and for the preaching and teaching, whether here or elsewhere, there's always a kind of expectation, a joyful expectation of what God will do through His Word in that given time. Because the Lord has promised that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And it doesn't stop being that power when a person is converted. It continues being that power unto salvation after a person is converted and is being sanctified and growing. 
Nothing is more thrilling than heralding the gospel of God. This was certainly true for Pastor Paul, the apostle who penned this magisterial epistle to the Romans. He was compelled to preach the gospel, and it was his delight and duty to do so. In his opening remarks in chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he wrote this, quote, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He says, I am under obligation to preach to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. In other words, Paul doesn't come at the preaching of the gospel like, like a Pharisee, like he used to be. Paul, of course, was knocked off of his horse on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians. He wanted to destroy the way. He wanted to kill Christians. In fact, he, he stood and watched the martyrdom of one of God's children. And so Paul was this, this Christian persecutor, and then God saved him and made him an apostle. And so he comes under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, because of the calling on his life. He comes under obligation to preach the gospel to everyone, the free gospel of grace to every kind of person, of every background, of every ethnicity. And he's also eager to preach the gospel to the Christians who are in Rome. Did you catch that? Paul was obligated and eager to preach the good news to preach the good news, not only to unbelieving Greeks and barbarians, but to the church. To the church. He was eager to preach the gospel to the church at Rome. And this is important. This is so important because the gospel was never intended to only be preached to unbelieving folks out there and not to believing folks in here. Christians need the gospel. Christians never outgrow the gospel or mature past the gospel. It's just the opposite, in fact. The more we understand and apply the gospel, the deeper we go in our study of the gospel, the more we grow spiritually, the more we mature, the more we are conformed to the image of Christ, the more we abide in the, the love and unassailable promises of God, and the more we are compelled to share it with others. I remember as a young Christian thinking, you know, I already know the gospel. Let's go on to more important things like Christian living. By the way, it's important to talk about Christian living. How do we live as Christian believers in light of the gospel? But there's nothing ever more important than the gospel. The gospel is not only necessary at the beginning of the Christian life. It is essential for all of it for all of the Christian life. The Apostle Paul had never met the Christians in Rome. Nevertheless, he earnestly prayed for them. He longed to visit them, and he, and he was eager to preach the gospel to them. For the time being, however, being prevented by God's providence from visiting them, he would send them a letter. 
he would send them a letter, a Holy Spirit-inspired letter that would become the greatest, clearest, and most penetrating explanation and exposition of the gospel ever written. And as we've walked through the first almost eight chapters together, we've seen many different dimensions and implications of the gospel. It's like a, a low country sunset. Have you seen a low country sunset recently? It's incredible how uh, it changes. It's like every two or three minutes, it looks very different. It's the same sunset, and yet it takes on a different kind of beauty. This is how it is with the gospel. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we have an exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and it's changing, not in its nature or essence, but in the way that we see it, the dimensions of it, and it becomes more and more beautiful, more and more precious to us. Grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, we see that there truly is salvation in Jesus Christ. We see it over and over and over again in the scriptures. But one dimension of the gospel, one view of the gospel, as it were, that I want us to focus on this morning is one that does not always get the attention that it merits. And that is the heavenly intercession of Christ. The heavenly intercession of Christ. Indeed, we focus on Jesus' incarnation and birth, as we should. We consider his sinless life, as we ought. We, of course, talk about his suffering and atoning death and, and his glorious resurrection and, and even his ascension and exaltation, being seated at the right hand of God. Rightly so. We ought to, to glory and boast in all of these truths and dimensions of the gospel. These aspects of Christ's mission and ministry are foundational to the gospel. But, dear ones, the same is true of his heavenly intercession. In fact, without it, all that D Jesus did for us during his time on earth would be to no avail. It would be to no avail. Dear ones, please hear this. Jesus's mission to fulfill all righteousness, to die for our sins and rise for our justification is finished. That mission is finished. And God the Father has accepted his work on our behalf. Thus, he exalted him, and he is seated at God's right hand. He sat at the right hand of God. It means his work is finished in that sense. His mission is finished. And God has given him all authority in heheven and on earth. Jesus' mission on earth is complete, but his ministry in heaven towards those of us on the earth continues. His mission is complete, but his ministry in heaven continues. That is his ministry of intercession. And this is, I promise you, the best news that you will hear all day, that Christ intercedes for you by name. Those of you who are in Christ, he intercedes for you. Our risen Lord's heavenly ministry of intercession is foundational to the gospel. No hope without it. Beloved, no hope without it. No hope without the heavenly intercession of Christ, our great high priest. And dear ones, no assurance without it. No assurance of salvation without it. 
John Murray writes this, quote, Nothing serves to verify the intimacy and constancy of the Redeemer's preoccupation with the security of his people. Nothing assures us of his unchanging love more than the tenderness which his heavenly priesthood bespeaks, and particularly as it comes to expression in his intercession for us. What a thought. Let that sink in this morning, that Christ, the risen and exalted Christ, is interceding for you, and he is always and ever preoccupied with your security in him. Always and ever preoccupied with the security of his people. Christ is ever preoccupied with your salvation and mine. He is committed to completing by his spirit what he started in you. You remember in John 16 and John 14 when Christ was telling his disciples he was going away? He said, but I'm going to send to you the paraclete. I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. And he says in the Great Commission that I will be with you. You see, Christ is with us by his spirit. Christ is with us through his word being proclaimed and read. Christ is with us at the table and in our baptism. By his spirit, Christ is with us through the means of grace. He is with his people and he is in his humanity, the God-man at the right hand of God, interceding for us, praying for us. And this is, again, a foundational part of the good news that what Christ began, he will finish in terms of our own salvation. Again, the mission of Christ is done, but his ministry continues. And that's the first point this morning of two, a completed mission and an ongoing ministry, a completed mission and an ongoing ministry. Look with me again at verse 34, Romans 8 and verse 34. Who is to condemn? You ever feel condemned? You ever feel condemned by the accusations of the evil one? By the accusations of others? Do you ever feel condemned by your own heart? Well, if you're a normal human being and a normal Christian, the answer I know is yes. Yes, I do feel at times condemned. But the question here, this rhetorical question, which comes after several other rhetorical questions uh, in Romans 8, 31 through 39, says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. The apostle here with this rhetorical question is, is, is setting this forth so it would be clear to us, to God's redeemed children, that we cannot be condemned by Satan or any, anyone else. Paul began the chapter with the heart-stirring pronouncement, remember, that there is therefore now no what? Condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, those who are, please, please listen to this, those who are by grace 
through faith, united to Jesus, are no longer under God's wrath and condemnation for their sin. Why? Because Christ, the righteous one, died for your sin. Because Christ, the righteous one, paid the debt of your sin on Calvary's tree. He paid it in full with the shedding of his own blood. He bore the full weight and fury of God's wrath and was condemned in our place. He was condemned so that we would be forgiven and set free and justified. And this was all a part of God's great sovereign plan for the redemption of his people. Look with me again at verse 31. Paul, in response to all that he's written before, says, What then shall we say to these things? What can I say? If God is for us, and he obviously is, who can be against us? In other words, what what opposition can prevail over us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he then not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's, He's... fortifying, he's buttressing our assurance through the knowledge of who God is and what he has done for us in his son. He's strengthening our assurance. He's teaching the Roman Christians and us that our salvation is secure in Christ. Who is to condemn us? Paul asks in verse 34. God the Father will surely not condemn us. He gave his son to save us from condemnation. Jesus surely will not condemn us, for he gave his life for us. And more than that, Paul states, Christ was raised for us from the dead and seated at God's right hand. And in other words, Jesus' sacrifice for sinners was accepted by God the Father. He was vindicated. Otherwise, he would have stayed in the grave. The grave could not... Hold him. And so God exalted Jesus and seated him at his right hand. The mission that Jesus came to accomplish was accomplished and approved by the Father. But his ministry, his ministry goes on. Look at me at those last six words of verse 34. Who indeed is interceding for us. You see, all these things have happened in the past. They are accomplished. But this one is currently going on. And it continues into the future. He is interceding for us. Dear believer, Jesus' ministry of intercession is taking place right now. Have you given that much thought? We are not only to dwell on that which Christ did, but on what Christ is currently doing. It's taking place for you, dear Christian. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is interceding for his people by name in the courts of heaven. He is praying for you, that you would persevere to the end. And his prayers are full of love and compassion. and, And they are always answered by the Father. 
Think of that. The father never hears one of Christ's prayers for his sheep and says, ah, I don't know about that. Or, no, Jesus, nope. Because Jesus and the Father's will are the same. And the Spirit's will with the Father and the Son are the same because God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and, the, and God has one will. They're three persons. The great mystery. And so the prayers of the Spirit for us are according to the will of God, as it says earlier in Romans 8. And and the prayers of Christ in the courts of heaven are according to the will of God. And so we know the Father is listening to them and answering them. Christ is interceding for you and me according to his grace and his mercy. Jesus is our great and final king. Jesus is our great and final prophet. And Jesus is our great and final priest. Those primary offices in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king, offices which which clearly were not being exercised in in a godly way for a majority of the time in the Old Covenant. So many sinful and wicked kings, priests, and prophets. There were good ones as well, but even those had faults. And we're sinners and needed God's grace. But Christ is our great and final priest. The duties of the Levitical priesthood in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, were, were primarily to, to make sacrifices for God's people and also to intercede for God's people, to pray for them. However, due to the sin of the priests and the inadequacy of the blood of bulls and goats, The priestly sacrificial system of the Old Covenant was insufficient. Always it was insufficient, and it always anticipated something greater. It was always pointing to something greater, that something, or rather someone greater, was Christ, who was both perfect priest and perfect sacrifice for his people. The writer to the Hebrews summarizes this truth in Hebrews 7. 23 through 25. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me to Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. The writer puts it this way. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ always lives to make intercession for his people. For those who by grace, through faith, draw near to God through him. Beloved, let me ask you, are you in Christ this morning? Are you drawing near to God through him? If that is true, then Christ lives to make intercession for you And heaven, by the way, I didn't ask if you are perfectly drawing near to God. 
That's why we need Jesus in the first place. But the question is, are you by grace, through faith, drawing near to God? If so, you can be certain that the Lord Jesus Christ is interceding for you in heaven. He is your advocate. And when Satan brings his accusations and charges, then the one who lived and died and rose for you is right there to answer them. And he always prays for you by name to persevere, to persevere, to carry on in the assurance of God's unshakable love in Christ. He always lives to make intercession for his people. Mark Jones, in his wonderful book called Knowing Christ, explains it this way, quote, Since Christ always lives, he always intercedes. There is no Christian alive who has not had Christ mention his or her name to the Father. Indeed, if you are a Christian, it is precisely because the Son presented your name to his and now your Father. He could perhaps have sacrificed millions of worlds of innocent men and angels, but even these sacrifices would pale in comparison with the worth of Christ's bloody sacrifice, end quote. And so, dear one, from beginning to end, your salvation is of the Lord. The world is telling you constantly to rely upon yourself, to focus on yourself, to to dig deep into yourself, to find strength in yourself. But here in Scripture, we are told to look outside of ourselves to Christ, who is making intercession for us, the one who died and rose again for our salvation and who is even now making intercession for us. We are to keep our eyes on Him. We are to to set our eyes on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See, salvation is of the Lord. We've seen this in Romans 8, haven't we? God foreloved and, and chose you before time. In time, he called you to himself by his Holy Spirit. He raised you to spiritual life in union with Christ. In Christ, God adopted you and he justified you. And by his Spirit, he is sanctifying you. And one day he will glorify you. And dear ones, in this in-between time, this, in this wilderness age that we considered last Lord's Day evening, where we are uh, pilgrims and exiles and strangers and sojourners in this world, in this, in this valley of tears, we can be sure that Christ is holding us fast, that he is interceding for us in the courts of heaven and thus guaranteeing our inheritance in glory. Now, that truth will help you get through hard times. Physical difficulties, as some of you are experiencing. Mental and emotional challenges, which some of you are experiencing. Family difficulties and trials. Work-related trials and difficulties. Perhaps spiritual depression of some kind. Remember this, dear one. You are not alone in your suffering. The sufferings of this world cannot even be compared to the weight of glory that we anticipate. And you are not alone in your suffering. Everyone in this room is bearing some kind of burden, if not many. And remember this. Christ is interceding for you. 
You may feel like you're hanging on by your fingernails as it concerns your faith. But Christ has you. And he will never let you go. No one can snatch you out of his hands. He is your good shepherd. He is praying for you. He is your advocate. And he will pray for you, even as he prayed for Peter, that the devil would not sift him like wheat. He is praying for you and me by name that we would not be sifted by the devil like wheat. Oh, does this not comfort our hearts this morning? Jesus is interceding for us. We are not alone. We are not alone. In his high priestly prayer of John 17, where this idea of intercession is so uh, clear, Jesus prays for his people. John 17, in verses 6 through 10, he says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me, Father, out of the world. Yours they were, Jesus says, and you gave them to me, he says. And they have kept your word. Now, verse 7, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and I have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Here we learn that Christ prays for his disciples. He prays for his followers. He prays for those who are in him. He intercedes for us in heaven. He didn't just pray in his earthly ministry. He prays in his heavenly ministry for his disciples. But we must note here that he doesn't intercede for everyone in the world. He says it right here. I pray not for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Some believe that God is at the top of a mountain and there's all these paths going up to him and all the religions are the different pathways to God. But we see here in the Gospels that Christ is the eternal Son of God. We see here that he is the, uh, the true Son of God who came from the Father to save sinners. We confessed earlier in the Ten Commandments we should have no other gods but one, the one true and living God. We are not like the ancient Romans who have a panoply of gods and idols. We serve the one true God and we, second commandment, reject idols and the worship of idols. You see, Jesus intercedes for those who are in him, who believe in him, who have faith in him, who are united to him and and so this raises an important question. Are you his? Are you his? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior by faith? Have you turned from your sin? Is there a, a time in your life where you can remember in some way turning from your sin and surrendering your life to Jesus? Now, some will say, well, I don't remember a day where I... Well, that's great. I'm glad you can't remember a day, but you should remember a day where you repented of your sin and... 
received Christ as your Lord and Savior and gave yourself to him. In fact, a Christian does that every day. As a disciple, we follow Christ. We don't follow the world. We don't follow idols. We are the Lord's. So if you do not know Christ, if you are not in him by grace through faith, even today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He is full of compassion and mercy. Secondly, in addition to the heavenly high priesthood of Christ, his continuing ministry, I want us to see here the tender heart of Christ for his people. The tender heart of Christ for his people. Last week, I began my message with the point that most believers at one time or another have struggled with a lack of assurance of their salvation. They've, they've struggled with doubt uh, that, that God loves them. In fact, it's, it's very common amongst believers for this to be the case. And, and as I mentioned last week, this is especially true when life gets hard. We can begin to question God's presence and promises and protection. But dear ones, contemplating the intercession of Christ serves to build up our assurance. And it does so in part by showing us the heart of Christ for us. The heart of Christ for us. You know, it's interesting in the medieval Roman Catholic Church, I've shared before that on many of the doors of cathedrals, there is a depiction usually carved in the wood of the doors, of the last judgment. And there's Christ here, and he is casting all of these people into hell here, and on the other side, people are being ushered into heaven. And oftentimes, Mary is above Jesus in these depictions. And what happens is, people in that tradition often do not see Christ as a compassionate Savior, but only as a judge. And Christ is a judge. He will judge the nations with equity. But what is not emphasized is his grace and compassion and love. And so what do you do if, you know, when you were a kid and you came home and you were in trouble, who did you usually go to? You usually went to mom, right? Mom is going to show kindness and dad is going to be upset. Sometimes it's the opposite. But people go to Mary because they're afraid to go to Jesus. Mary, mother of God, full of grace, right? And you know the rest. What I want us to understand this morning is that if you see Christ in a way as a kind of angry older brother or this simply a wrathful judge and not as a compassionate loving Savior, someone that you can pour out your heart to, and someone who loves you with his own heart, that you're not seeing him correctly. In one of the greatest treatises on the heavenly ministry of Christ, uh, written by Thomas Goodwin, English Puritan, uh, this was published in 1651, uh, we have a treatise that shows the heart of Christ for for his people. In fact, the title of this is called The Heart of Christ in Heaven to Sinners on Earth. The Heart of Christ in Heaven to Sinners in, on Earth. I would recommend that you read this if you haven't already. Again, published in 1651. I'm quite sure you could find this online. Um, 
uh, or you could buy the 22 volumes of Thomas Goodwin and add it to your shelf. Uh, there's a wonderful collection of writings, but this is in volume four, The Heart of Christ in Heaven to Sinners on Earth. Listen to what he says in this text as he talks about the focus of his treatise. It's to, quote, show that Christ's heart in respect of pity and compassion remains the same as it was on earth, that he intercedes there with the same heart he did here below, and that he is as meek, as gentle, as easy to be entreated, as tender in his bowels, so that they may deal with him as fairly in the great matter of their salvation. And so when we read the stories in the Gospels of Christ speaking so tenderly to the woman at the well, as He speaks to the woman who is blamed by the Pharisees of having multiple affairs, as she did, and forgave her, as you think of the Christ who forgave Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who was despised by the people as a traitor to his own people and who had been pilfering money from people for so many years. And Christ forgave him, saved him. As you think about the Christ who forgave Peter for his three denials during Christ's greatest time of need. As you consider the same Christ who was nailed to the cross on Calvary, For you and for me, this same Christ, dear ones, is in heaven right now, interceding for you. He is seated at God's right hand. He's sitting on the throne. And remember that this throne is a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace for his people. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, the writer puts it this way. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. What do you get when you approach Christ on his throne, you get grace. You get mercy in your time of need. He does not shoo you away. He does not look at you with a blank stare, as it were, uninterested and, and, and not knowing exactly what it is you're feeling. He knows. He can sympathize with you. He can empathize with you. Because Christ is fully man and he suffered here on earth. And he underwent temptation yet without sin. And so when we approach the throne, beloved, we don't approach with confidence in ourselves, in our own strivings, in our own spiritual lists and accomplishments. We come in the name of Christ and we approach our high priest who's praying for us on that throne of grace. I love when Tom, Thomas Goodwin says this, quote, Thy mercy can never exceed his mercy. Excuse me, thy misery can never exceed his mercy. 
And so as we close, take comfort, dear ones. Not only that Jesus' mission was accomplished as we remember what he did for us, but that his ministry of intercession continues forever. His work, in a very general sense, is not done. His mission's accomplished, but his work, in a very real sense, is not done because he intercedes for us. Again, listen to what Thomas Goodwin says in his other wonderful work called Christ Set Forth. Quote, So that we are to look upon our mediator Christ as doing as much work for us in heaven at this instant as ever he did on earth, here suffering, but there praying and presenting his sufferings. All his work was not done when he had, uh, when he had done here. That work here was indeed the, hardest, the harder piece of the two, yet soon dispatched. But his work in heaven, though sweeter far, yet lies on his hands forever. Therefore, let us leave out none of these in our believing on him. Let us not leave out the intercession of Christ when we consider the gospel and all that God has done for us and all that he's doing for us. Secondly, do take comfort that Christ is full of mercy and compassion towards you, dear believer. And thirdly, whatever trial you may be going through, you need to remember Christ is praying for you in the courts of heaven by name. The Spirit is praying for you in the courts of your own heart, interceding for you according to the will of God. He loves you. Christ died for you. Christ rose for you. And he represents you at God's right hand. And he prays for you. This is the dimension of the gospel that should grip our hearts and compel us to live lives of grateful and growing obedience to his commands. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the heavenly intercession of Christ, our great high priest. O oh Lord, we pray that our hearts would be comforted as we think of him praying for us as we go through various trials. And we pray, Lord, that this truth would compel us to repent of our sin, to not allow any patterns of sin to develop in our lives, but to, uh, to kill them, to mortify them, and to live for your glory in all things, in our marriages and in our parenting and in our work and in our uh, activities that we would seek to bring you glory and honor because we love you and we want to respond to your great love and compassion towards us with God-centered obedience. Oh, but Father, we thank you for this final clause in verse 30, 34, those, those beautiful six words where Christ is interceding for us. We thank you for your amazing gospel and this glorious dimension of it. We pray this in Jesus' name.